The Comics Course is an offering of the lectures from Miskatonic University's Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, offered as a publicly available podcast. Class is in session. I am here, your well and truly lubricated Professor Hamby, along with the very dry, dry like a Georgia dry town dry, T.A. Rowan. So secretly drunk. See, you're secretly drunk. The Georgia town is, but are you? <laughs> no. Good. You shouldn't admit it anyway, since this is an official university podcast. I know. Okay. So I was thinking last time, comics course, podcast of our lectures, that we got about halfway through the kindly ones. Mm-hmm. I was just looking. That was three issues. That felt like a lot more than three issues worth of content. It really did, didn't it? This might end up being three episodes, but we're going to chug in and see what we can get through today. Mm-hmm. Now, as a quick refresher, the Kindly Ones is structured like a Greek tragedy with the three fates of Greek lore. Uh, again, I'm probably mispronouncing these, but Clotho, uh, Atropos, and Lachis serving the role of the Greek chorus. And the character of Fury, who is now living a civilian life and who gestated her baby inside dreams with her ghost husband, uh, has now had her child disappear, Mm -hmm. taken by Puck and Loki. Mm -hmm. And she's lost it. Now, of course, Morpheus has opened himself up to being destroyed by the kindly ones if they are invoked against him because he took the life of his son Orpheus at Orpheus's request. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of where we're at. And Morpheus was being has been weird. And people in the supernatural realm, clearly, who are connected enough, know that something is coming. So we start issue four of The Kindly Ones, back at Lux, Lucifer's Jazz Club. Let's go. Where an angel has come to visit during the day. Because nothing bad ever happens when angels show their head in this series. Right, and this is one of the angels that was assigned to take over hell. Mm -hmm. And you can tell he's an angel because of the fancy font. Mm Now... I have a funny story to tell you. Uh-huh. Neil Gaiman posted this on Twitter a few years ago. And they said they were re- somebody was reading Season of Mists and asked him, why did they use such a hard-to-read font? Uh-huh. And Neil Gaiman's reply was, it wasn't a font. It was handwriting. <laughs> and that never even occurred. And that shows you a, a generational drift right there that your generation does not even imagine that they're going to be reading handwriting. It's handwriting? I never even considered that the whole time we've been doing these. Right. Everything here is drawn by hand, including the text. That is literally the job, traditionally, of a letterer, is to draw the letters by hand. I've been assuming this is all the text. Nope. I, and in today's world, 
frequently there are some comic style fonts that are used and sometimes they're typed up and then just tweaked with Photoshop or Illustrator or whatever. But pre-heavy digital age, it was always done by hand. And certainly was here. And still could be sometimes, but not as much these days. But it's one of the reasons that lettering was an actual art. And it's not one that I've paid a lot of attention to in the comics course, but we talk more about the literary side of it here. Mm. Um, I, I wish Professor Hargraves would, who is, you know Hargraves, I don't know if he's your advisor or not, but he's in the art department. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that he loves comics as well. And I wish he would do a complimentary course talking about the art, mm. uh, which I'm not as qualified to do. But the history of art, art styles, how printing technology affected the colors, how lettering worked. I mean, I think it's all really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, yes, so th this, including the stuff that looks very regular here, is hand-drawn. And it looks like a font because that's how good the letterer is. Kind of awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... That gives me a new appreciation for the text bubbles. Yeah. They really are, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So this is one of the angels who's now ruling hell who comes to visit. We find Mazakine, this ancient demoness, on her hands and knees washing the floor. Because she'll do anything for Lucifer. Mm -hmm. And as he approaches, we already knew really it was Remiel because the other one never talks. And Lucifer is having what looks to be a cupcake and a cup of tea or coffee and maybe some strips of bacon. Bacon and cupcakes. I mean, why not? If you're an immortal, do what you want. That sounds like a good lunch to me. I think it's his breakfast. <laughs> Either way. So Remiel comes up and he's trying to be all suave, right? And he's dressed in a white suit. The early bird catches the worm star of morning. The, um, worm that dieth not in this case, eh? Ha ha! How remarkably funny, Remiel. Not actually original, though, of course. And so they have, you know, a moment of interaction. Um, Remiel says that, yeah, he's looking over hell along with Duma, the angel. I'm assuming it's Duma and not Dumas. I'm assuming it's pronounced like the French Duma, where the S is silent guessing to. Uh, the only reason I know this is because of the writer, Alexander Dumas. Mm. So, anyway, they continue to have this conversation, and Lucifer sees completely through Remiel. Uh, Remiel's like, yeah, everything's great! We're making it redemptive! People love it, and it's just amazing. And Lucifer's like, okay, cool. And... So you're not going, oh, if only Lucifer would come back and take this shit pit off our hands and let us return to the ecstasy of the Silver City. Good, I'm glad you're not, you know, fixated on that sort of unproductive thought. <laughs> Meanwhile, Remiel looks very uncomfortable and is like, have you ever thought about it? To which Lucifer just breaks out laughing and goes, no, been there, done that. Wore the t-shirt, ate the burger, bought the original cast album, choreographed Legions of the Damned, and orchestrated the screaming. Now, now, 
Morningstar, really, be honest. Honesty is a somewhat overrated virtue, Remiel. <laughs> <laughs> Honesty, for example, would compel me to admit that I have never liked you even when I was an angel. Didn't like you. Also, I never respected you. Damn! You didn't join the rebellion. Not because you felt I was wrong, but because you were too damn scared. What would you have done had I won? Told me that you'd always supported me ideologically? That you were secretly cheering me on the whole time? Tell me, Remiel, what did you do when the order came for you to spread your wings and reign in hell? Did you whimper? Did you wail? Somehow, I confess, I find myself certain that Dumas was the one that actually took the key. Dumas always struck me as having some backbone. Ooh. Which causes Remiel to loosen and spit on Lucifer. How angelly. Which leaves Lucifer to make a comment about, you know, I never gave up any of my abilities or power. I am the adversary. Mm. Which is to say, he could still destroy Remiel with no effort. Mm -hmm. uh, he's choosing to stay in a nightclub in L.A. and play jazz piano. He is arguably the second most powerful entity in the universe. Arguably, because yeah, there is a scale at which power is connected to identity. And is he more powerful than destiny? Maybe not. But destiny is also extremely bound to his rules. And it's really hard to know things without a fight actually breaking out. Well, and that's just it. We're humans. We're aggressive, linear, sword-like thinkers. I, I'm going to delve into some 70s sci-fi here for a second. There's a writer called Piers Anthony, a flawed writer, but nonetheless has had some real, you know, interesting works over the years. And he wrote a series of books where humans encounter aliens. Now, these weren't, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars aliens, where they're all bipedal, uh, with two arms and an opposable thumb, and just varying colors, and could be played by humans wearing masks. Mm -hmm. No, these are completely inhuman things. Mm -hmm. And they make an analogy of human ships all look like swords. Mm. Because humans are linear, aggressive thinkers. So the sword is a good metaphor for human thought. Meanwhile, there are races like the Polarians that build their ships as spheres. Mm -hmm. And they think about things very fundamentally different. It's not like understanding another human culture. You have to understand an entirely different form of thought. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about power between these kinds of entities, we fall into that trap of we're comparing completely inhuman entities based on the idea that the violence they can inflict on, inflict on each other is a measure of their power. But in fact, their power exists in a whole different context that we can't even understand. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think it's an interesting jump. Mm -hmm. So now we go into Hippolyta, Lyda's head. And on the first page, the artist did something nice. By the way, since we've talked about the lettering, I'm going to mention the lettering was done here by Todd Klein, uh, who did a lot of the lettering for Sandman. And even when I'm not a fan of the art, as I'm not here, um, uh, I think the... Lettering is brilliant. And I do kind of wonder here, the coloring is by a guy named Daniel Vazo. And 
I wonder if part of my dislike of the art is I just don't feel like the coloring works with the art. Which should not be blamed on the guy doing the pencil work. Yeah. Uh, the pencil work we mentioned last time is being done by Mark Hempel. Um, and interestingly, if you look at the right-hand side, they do the split page mm -hmm. where Hippolyta's right in the center. And on the right-hand side is the quote-unquote what we would call real world. There are rats, it's dirty streets, it's a city, there's trash in the streets. And then on the left-hand side is this realm that she is mentally in. It's not really a dream realm. It's like a metaphorical spiritual realm. And she's torn between the two. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the black and white, I actually like that. Mm -hmm. But then you look at the color and it doesn't work with the style as well. I think it's that. And I don't, I, I just don't think I personally care for the art style. I think it comes off as a little stiff to me, personally. It does to me too. But the black and white still works better, doesn't it? Oh, definitely. Much better. So that's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the art style, but I think in black and white, his art works much better than it does with the bright coloring. Agreed, agreed. So, I mean, I want to be fair to Mark Hempel that because I don't like the finished product, that's because I don't like the combination of his these pencils with these colors. Yeah. It's not all on Mark Hempel. I wish it was better coordinated. Yeah. Well, that's the job of the company and the editors and all that jazz. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As always, it's the big company's fault. Right. So, she's wandering through, and you see that she's in both this real world, where she's sitting on a sidewalk, but she's also in this fantasy desert. Mm. And she's not... She's not all there. Yep. And as she wanders through this place, she runs into these fantastic figures. She runs into a cyclops who tries to advise her. She runs into a cat who shows up like a one-eyed bast, sort of. And they have these conversations that are layered in metaphor and about stories. And then we zap back to Rose Walker. Now, we haven't seen Rose in a while, have we? Yeah. We haven't seen her since her arc. Yep. Well, we saw her briefly, at least, we've seen her briefly a few times since her arc. Oh. But just in passing. Okay. Nothing major. But here we have Rose, and Rose is in a dream, having sex with somebody, and Abel is on top of the wardrobe watching. That's gross. Creepy. Creepy. <laughs> and then she wakes up. And we see Carla, Lyda's friend. The one that was supposed to be watching Daniel and fell asleep. And we find out that Rose is living in the same building with Carla and Lyda. Oh, that's interesting. It is. And we find out that Sorry, I'm having a little pay trouble with the pages here. Um, light. Uh, we find out Rose still looks very young. She's in her 20s, but people think she's like 17. Mm -hmm. And they established that was kind of a thing with her back in the first one, too. Mm -hmm. 
and you see that there's this figure on TV called Vixen LaBitch, who plays up these feminist and man versus women things for humor. Mm. And Rose says she's not a fan. Fair. Now the storyline moves on. And we see Lyda approaching this building. In this building, she approaches two women. Take a look. Do they look familiar? Oh, it's a, um, um, um... They look like the sisters yeah. from Doll's House. Or maybe not sisters. But the two women that live together. Yeah. But they're not. Mm. And she tells them that she's seeking the kind ladies... And one of them says, our sister died, but we never took revenge. We knew there'd be trouble one day, her being mortal. It's not as if we never said anything. We still miss her. We still mourn. And they essentially are trying to recruit Lyda to being their new sister. Mm -hmm. Their sister's name was Medusa. And these are Gorgons. And... Lyda goes to get an apple from the tree, and there's a three-headed snake in the tree. And she asks, who are you? Are you Satan? And it says, not bloody likely. Name of Gurion. And you? Gurion being the name of Medusa's son in the old tales, in, in the Greek stories. And she has a conversation with Gerion about the tree of knowledge. And the tree of life from the Bible. And the metaphor. Which is it literal or metaphor? I mean, she herself right now is living in a realm of mythology. Yeah. That is also real and metaphor for the real world as real world things are mirroring it. Does this mean she's delusional and misinterpreting things? Well, these things seem to have a consistency beyond her. I mean, there are references to things that she doesn't know about. So, if you were reading a fiction novel, you might say, well, she knew them subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And this is all an elaborate delusion on her part. But magic is obviously, or at least, events in the fabric of reality exist in this universe that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. So, she's not in the dreaming, but she is in some combination of mythology as metaphor in the real world, mashed together. Yeah. And the Gorgons want to recruit her. And the snake, Garyon, is warning her that you can sleep in their house and you can eat this food, but it doesn't recommend it. Mm. Now, there are lots of old legends about If you take hospitality from supernatural creatures, you can become of them. Yeah. You know, stories about going to Hades and do not eat the food in in hell or you will become trapped there. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly the metaphor here, that if she eats of this realm, she's going to become more of this realm. Mm -hmm. And we see as she's eating it, and in the fantasy world... The snake Garion is looking over her shoulder. We see a lizard on a dumpster looking over her shoulder here. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back in the dream realm, Morpheus is gathering the little 
skull heads from the Corinthian and is heading out to create a new Corinthian. Because things aren't really going his way. Well, just because it's time. He's meant to do this for a while. Mm -hmm. Oh, and back in the Gorgon's house, Hippolyta is starting to grow snakes out of her hair. That's not a bad sign at all. Well, the snake did warn her, right? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, we go back to Rose, who heads to the hospital, mm. or rather a hospice, where she takes stuff to see Zelda. Now, I'm not going to go through this in detail. Uh, it's a painful scene. Uh, Zelda kind of tries to guilt Rose into having sex with her. Um, Zelda is obviously missing companionship and touch. Mm -hmm. And Rose is like, uh, no. Yeah. There's a boundary here. Mm -hmm. And she brings her food and visits her. But we find out that Zelda... And we find this out over time, but I'm going to go ahead and just summarize it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Zelda is dying from AIDS, mm. HIV infection, and it turns out that Chantel, her, was her girlfriend, not her sister, mm -hmm. and she's already died from it. Aww. Now, lesbian transmission of AIDS was very uncommon, mm -hmm. but not unheard of. Yeah. And it turned out that Chantel got it from a transfer and an operation. So she got it, passed away from it, and had communicated it to Zelda, mm -hmm. who is now slowly dying from it in this hospice because there's nothing they can do. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind, this is in the early 90s. In the 30 years since then, our treatments for HIV have become way more effective. Yeah, it's, it's great. At this point, it was pretty much still a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Back on the beach... Morpheus is working on resurrecting the Corinthian into a new form. He is joined by Matthew and Lucian, mm -hmm. who Matthew is not thrilled with the idea of a new Corinthian, mm -hmm. but the new Corinthian does seem to be more friendly. That's good. As well as eager to be as vicious and cruel to mortals as possible. Oh, joy. Well, he's a nightmare. That's his job. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't be a very good nightmare if he was, you know, happy. True. Meanwhile, Nuala has returned to the land of fairy, and she has brought with her the boon that Morpheus gave her. Oh. Morpheus gave her a boon that if she ever wished to speak to him, she could summon him to her. Oh, damn. I forgot about that. And I'm not sure if I mentioned it last time. Oh, maybe you didn't. So Titania, the queen of fairy, speaks to her and says, So... That's very pretty. That's new, isn't it? Yes, milady. So how was he? Who, milady? The Lord Shaper, Nuala. And whom else's realm have you spent the last three years? Oh, um, he was perfectly tolerable. Tolerable. How, you know a British motherfucker is writing this when he writes how tolerable, you know, perfectly tolerable. Yeah. That, that, that is one of the most British things Neil Gaiman has ever written. Definitely. He gave, he, he gave away his nationality with that yeah. sentence. Titania continues, Did he ever speak of me? Of you, my lady? Yes, of me. He might have done, my lady. I really could not say. No. 
I was rarely privy to the Lord Shaper's conversations, my lady. He keeps his own counsel. This is called ducking and weaving. Yep. Did he happen to give you any messages for me? Not one, my lady. And so obviously Titania is upset. Yeah. I mean, we know that she and he used to form the two-back monster. Mm -hmm. At least on some metaphorical level. Because mm -hmm. they're not human. Mm -hmm. And she's not happy that the Lord Shaper has been completely uninterested in her. And she even tries to threaten indirectly to take Morpheus's gift away. And Nuwala basically tries to walk this thin line because it's her queen and say, it was a gift, it is not mine to give you, my lady. Yeah. Which is a technicality in bullshit. But they're fairies. Right, so it's Te a technicality that's binding. Uh-huh. Even if it pisses the queen off. Mm-hmm. And it means the queen still wants a connection to Morpheus. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, emo boy must have game. I don't know how someone this emo and this, like, self-exhorted in his own misery has this many women pining for him. I don't know. But in the real world, I've seen plenty of jackasses who have women pining for them that I don't understand how it happens, so. True. Yeah. It happens. It happens. So, Carla's beginning to get a clue. She's gone to the police station to ask about the two fuckwit detectives. Mm-hmm. To be told they don't exist. Because, of course. And she goes back to look at the crumpled photo of the baby that Lida left on the floor, which then cleans itself up and goes, Carla! I expect and then catches fire. I expect nothing less from a baby that looks like that. I expect nothing left from something left by Loki and Puck. True. So Rose is down in the apartment now, and they're chatting, and Rose is saying, I got a bell to England for a few days. Joy. Um, and Carla says, why? Mm -hmm. And she says, oh, my grandmother contacted me and said she had something to give me. To which Carla says, I thought you said your grandmother was dead. And she says, oh, she is. What the fuck? Uh, to which Rose basically replies, I've had a weird shit life. <laughs> Fair. So, out in the woods, Hippolyta's running into herself. Herself as three. She, the Furies are three, and she is a Fury. Descended through her mother from Fury blood somehow. That part was never fully explained. But we see Loki as the police detective again. He now confronts Carla and sets her on fire in her car to kill her. And he yells, I am Loki Scarlip, Loki Skywalker, Loki Giant's Child, Loki Lysmith. I am Loki who is fire and wit and hate. And I will be under an obligation to no one. Now, when we saw Loki back in Season of Mists, he was freed with an obligation. So, obviously, we're here now meant to believe that Loki has kidnapped Daniel in order to set things in motion to get Morpheus killed. <laughs> and that Loki is the uh, uh, 
the uh, inventor of this scheme. Mm-hmm. At least that's what we're meant to believe at this point. I don't believe it, but we'll talk about that later. Meanwhile, Rose is on the plane to England. She's not having a great time. She runs into the a young fellow, Mr. Holdaway. Mm-hmm. She's expecting the older Mr. Holdaway, but it turned out he passed away oh. a year or two ago. And... The younger one is a member of the law firm and has been sent to take her and takes her back to the to this estate where we find out um, the estate here is where her grandmother, Unity Kincaid, lived out the last period of her life. And she says she, as an excuse, says she's working on a book about the family history and she wanted to get some sort of color for where her grandmother lived her life sleeping. There. So she wanders around. She goes to look at the room. She even goes to look in the cupboard where the three ladies greeted her when she was first there. But, of course, it's just an empty cupboard. Uh-huh. And then this older woman comes along and brings her back into this other room where two other older ladies are sitting. Although they're of three ages, a younger older lady... A normal older lady and a really ancient older lady. Mm-hmm. The fates. Yep. And they kind of play a word game with her, because they don't tend to be straightforward. Because why would any ancient, all-powerful beings speak in anything but riddles? But it's another example of how this, this series of events are bringing the mythical realm and the literal realm together. They're not popping out of cupboards in a vision anymore. There are actual women sitting there. Mm -hmm. And they probably are real people with real histories who have reasons for saying what they're saying. Even if they're surprised why they're saying it. Mm -hmm. It's because these two realms are merging together during these events. Uh, Which we've seen incidents of before. I mean, we know that the death of one of the endless can cause fractures in reality, at least Morpheus. We saw that back in the World's End. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the fates tells this story, this folktale that Gaiman made up, and I'm not going to spoil it, but it really is one of dark revenge against uh, uh, a woman who is mistreated and her children mistreated mm-hmm. by a man. And the metaphor is pretty clear. Yeah. But it does show off Neil Gaiman's love of creating folktales. Yeah. Or things that feel like folktales. And I'm not going to spoil it for people. Because it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So she's she ends up leaving. And she experiences that owl in the window again. Like she did the first time. Yeah. And she talks to the guy running the place. And... He talks to her about how, you know, the Thousand Acre Woods that inspired Winnie the Pooh and all that happened very close by to here. She could even go and look through the woods if she wants. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, come down here. There's something I want to show you. And this is an old white guy. And she says, you're not some kind of pervert, are you? And he says, I am the very best kind of pervert. In the words of the immortal Quentin himself, I am one of the stately homos of old England. Miss Walker, I assure you, you have nothing to fear from me. (laughs) You're gay? You know I've never liked gay as a synonym for queer. Renders a perfectly decent word. Or is the combat. 
Lost philological battle, though, there. <laughs> How very queer of him. I know! It's glorious. I love it. Uh, so they go down to this room in the basement where a very old man is laying down there Ooh. with a Winnie the Pooh doll. And he says he was a magician with no talent for magic. They say his father could summon the four winds to attend him, blackmailed princes and prime ministers. Ooh. Alex told me that old Crowley himself conceded that Alex's father was by far the greater of the two. Mm. This is Alex, the young man who was cursed by Morpheus at the oh, end. Yeah. And this is his gay lover who's still watching over him. Oh, I remember that. I, I didn't think we were ever going to get, like, find out what actually, like, fully happened. He's been sleeping all these decades. That's mixed feelings. Sleeping in the same building that Unity Kincaid was sleeping in. Yeah, mixed feelings. On one hand, he was an ass, but still kind of sad to see. Yep. And Rose, feeling sorry, takes off her grandmother's ring, the annulet, and places it on the pillow next to him. Interesting. Now we move forward. And guess who else shows up from the past? Oh, not again. The witch bitch. Here we go again. Thessaly. Although now she's calling herself Larissa. Bitch can't even choose a name. I know. And she finds uh, Lida where these bums are at. And she's like, I'm looking for a woman. Ah, there's a motel over there. There's some cheap ones. She's like, I'm looking for a particular one. She's blonde and really strong. And they're like, oh, she's over there. Be careful. She's beating up anybody who's gotten close to her. Oh. Oh. Remember, she has not given up her supernatural strength or anything. Yeah. She, she's which a is, time bomb. Which is important because this is actually derived from the Furies. This means she still has a connection to the Furies. The thing about the the kindly ones is the kindly ones can take down Morpheus, but they have to be invoked by somebody who has cause. He's taken family blood, but he, the Furies must be invoked by somebody whose family he's harmed, which she believes has happened. So her reaching the Furies could enable the end game. Now we find Odin. Odin has shown up on Morpheus's doorstep. He's pissed off. He's found out that Morpheus tricked him and let Loki go. And they have a tense conversation. And at the end of it, Odin kind of gives up on his ire and says, well, you know, if I hated everybody that Loki tricked, I'd have to start with myself. Yeah. And he says, but be careful. You may think you have control of this, but you don't. It's Loki. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, an important line. Because I think Odin knows something that the reader doesn't, and Gaiman is trying to clue them in here. Mm -hmm. So we will come back to this later. Meanwhile, here's Delirium. And Delirium is wandering around, trying to find her dog. Her dog has gone missing. 
Because she's delirium. Because she's delirium. And notice in Destiny's garden what's happened to Morpheus. Morpheus's statue has his face in his hands now. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, this is following up on the uh, uh, events of him killing Morpheus. Oh, true, true. Remember, we've had several storylines in between, which make it seem like it was a long time ago. But these storylines were taking place with other characters on the side. For the Morpheus and them, this is immediately following his murder of Orpheus. Meanwhile, we see Thessaly, or Larissa, she's calling herself now, has taken Lyda home. And remember when I said there were lots of trigger warnings? Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna, about to hit another one. Oh, no. As Thessaly takes a black lamb and slaughter an infant black lamb, and slaughters it to use its blood in a ritual. I still really don't like her. No, no one does. But she's apparently pissed at how things ended with Morpheus. Shocker. And she draws a magic circle around Lyda that prevents anybody, including Morpheus, from doing anything to her. So the most expedient thing would be for Morpheus to show up and kill Lyda. Which he's allowed to do because she's threatening him. But with the circle there, he can't. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, uh, all these other events are happening. And Morpheus has given a job to uh, Matthew and the new Corinthian. To go find Daniel mm -hmm. and bring him back to Morpheus in the Dreaming. It all comes back around to the kid. Right. And the kid, who, let's remember, was last seen with a phoenix feather. Mm -hmm. And what is a phoenix representative of? Returning back from the dead. Rebirth, right. And he was in a fire, which ritualistically represents being cleansed of things. Oh, no. And can represent being made into an entity of spirit, like a funeral pyre. But the spirit continuing to move on. Meanwhile, Lyda has now actually met the Furies. And the Furies say, well, he has to have a blood debt for us to go after him. We can't just go after him because you're mad. Mm -hmm. But if he'd killed his own son, it would be different. And she says, I'm sorry, I wasted your time. And she turns away, anguished. But they stop her and say... He did kill his own son. Mm. We can't attack him because of Daniel, but we can because of Orpheus. Yep. And if you're invoking us, we can do it. So, in a way, the desires plot against Morpheus has come full circle. While the actual events she set in motion to destroy Morpheus uh, with Ro Unity and Rose Kincaid weren't productive, uh, they did set in motion everything else that has happened. Mm -hmm. Including, because he was gone so long, what happened with Brood and Glob, which led to the events with Lyda. Mm -hmm. And 
frankly, kind of the change in his personality to where he was willing, as an act of mercy, to kill his son. Yeah. Which before, he was not merciful enough to do. Mm-hmm. Now, at the beginning of this story, I really like this. We get to see a little bit of what Morpheus's daily obligations are like. Mm-hmm. What his job as the Lord of the Dreaming is. Because we actually don't get to see much of that. No. So I'm going to read some of this. On Monday, the King of Dreams gave an audience to five small children who had traveled a long way, seeking their lost mother. He met them in a hall filled with scarecrows who whispered among themselves in the voices of the stars of the silent screen. Dancing salamanders brought the children silver plates piled with exotic ice creams of various flavors and with fruits they had never seen before and would never see again, although they would dream of them on rare occasions until they died. Gravely, the Lord of Dreams listened to each child, plead and beg, and then at the end he drew a door in the air with his finger, and the children walked through it into the rest of their story. And on Monday, he arbitrated a dispute between the Knight of Clouds and the body politic. He awarded the Magic Lantern Show to the Knight of Clouds, although he permitted the body politic to retain custody of the six screaming stones in the snows of yesterday. He walked from his castle to the dreams of a small boy in Hong Kong. He remained there for some minutes, observing quietly, and then he left. He ate in the dream of the head chef in the best hotel in Sri Lanka, a dream of a certain meal described to the chef by his grandfather. The meal consisted of almost 50 separate courses and over 200 dishes. And so on and so on. Mm -hmm. But these are his duties that he must abide by. And some of it he's experiencing. I won't go over all of them. There's several more pages. But that brings us to the Kindly Ones, number eight. Class is dismissed, but if you need to talk to the professor, listen on. My link tree is at l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash prof hamby. That is p-r-o-f-h-a-m-b-y. That has all the places that I post announcements about new episodes, including the huge variety of podcasting services and YouTube that I drop them on. Additionally, I actually spend a little bit of personal time on a couple of networks, specifically Twitter. That's at Prof Hamby, P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. And on Tumblr, where the blog is called Simply Comics Course. And I also, for some of my more narrative cast episodes also post the transcriptions or notes from my podcasts. I'll see you around, and if you want to contact me, DMs are always open.